North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Victor and I are honored today to be joined by a very special guest, Professor Yasuyo Sakata, who is a professor of international relations at Kanda University of International Studies in Japan. She's part of the Faculty of Global Liberal Arts. Professor Sakata specializes in the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asian security with a focus on alliances and U.S. ROK Japan security cooperation, which is a very big topic of discussion we're going to have on the show today. And she also has a broader interest in the Indo-Pacific security. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for being here with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm a follower of this podcast, so I'm really excited to be on this show. That's good, because, you know, Victor has a lot of fans out there. So, you know, we love doing this podcast. I want to get both of your take, you know, on the events of the last couple of weeks. Japan and Korea are two key allies of the United States, of course, very important in terms of dealing with China but also supply chains. They recently, there were trilateral meetings in Pyongyang, and it produced the first ever trilateral joint statement. What's the current state of these bilateral and trilateral relations, Professor? And have we hit the floor and are, are things really improving? Well, thanks. Um, well, starting with just the uh, bilateral Japan-Korea relationship, um, as you said, have we hit the floor? As you know, the Japan and Korea hit rock bottom past few years, but now slowly improving. And the Yoon and the um, Kishida administrations have stopped the downfall, so, so to speak. But it hasn't quite fully recovered yet, so as hoped for. So that's the situation right now. Well, the Yoon administration started in May, but um, you know they really approached Japan very vigorously since April uh, with their presidential uh, team. So it was really started with good vibes and. You know, Japan, you know, welcomed the team. You know, we have the same kind of mindset with, you know, we, we welcome their Yoon's global pivotal state and all that. And also, you know, Hayashi-san and uh, Park Jin-san, the, the two foreign ministers, you know, they're really good friends and they have trust. And and it was really good vibes. And the Yoon team really worked, but it hasn't quite recovered yet because um Japan really welcomed them, but we were still cautious at the time. You know, it was not with open arms, so conditional because of the history issue, the uh, the Korean laborers issue. But we do also have some, um, a couple of thorns in defense relations as well. Can I ask Victor for your take? I agree with what Sakata-san said. I mean, I think we did hit rock bottom in the previous administration under the Moon Jae-in government in combination with the previous administration in Japan and the U.S., I would add, because the United States always plays some role in it, and it's quiet and behind the scenes in making sure that these two allies uh, get along. And the United States really abdicated that role uh, during the Trump administration. And so 
I think it really hit rock bottom. I think the point, I, I don't know, I would define the rock bottom point as being the point when Japan announced these export controls on South Korea with regard to precursor materials for chips for security concerns. And then in response, uh, South Korea threatened to end the intelligence sharing agreement uh, something known as GSOMIA. It's a it's an intelligence sharing agreement among the U.S., Japan, and Korea. And then John, the then National Security Advisor John Bolton traveled to the region, you know, to try to stop this whole thing from falling apart. To me, that was sort of the rock bottom point, the true rock bottom point. But I mean, when you're at rock bottom, you can only go in one direction, right? I really <laughs> agree that 2019 was yeah, that was the rock bottom. The defense relationship was damaged, you yeah. know. And then, like you described also, there was the incident between the two militaries, right, where the South Koreans locked radar onto a Japanese maritime self-defense plane. Think about a time when, like, China's doing all this stuff and North Korea's doing all this stuff, and these two are engaging. These two allies, it's just terrible. Anyway, we're past all that now, and we're on the road to mending things. It's a combination of things. I think the Yun government, the new Yun government, really made this a priority of their of their foreign policy, that they understood how damaged the relationship was, and they really made it a priority of their foreign policy. And, and they were going to pursue it regardless of what the response was from Tokyo. Because in the beginning, Tokyo, you know, they didn't, they dipped their foot in the water, but they were so burned by the previous government that they were very cautious. But Yun just kept going. And then Biden, you know, Biden is all about allies. So they've been very supportive of this as well. Yes, they have been very steady uh, since they came into power um, in 2020, by the way. But after the Yun measures came, it really, the vibes have really changed. And um, even at the, um, you know, ambassadorial level, if I may give you an episode, um, you know, Ambassador um, Ram Emanuel um, in Japan um, invited the new ROK ambassador at the time, Yun Dong-ming, you know, he's friends of all, all of us, <laughs> back in uh, early August um, when he just came in and Ambassador Emmanuel invited um, Ambassador Yun to, to the ambassador's residence and invited many others to welcome him mm-hmm. and to show the support. Um, and also, of course, Japanese um, counterparts for there. And and actually, I was invited there. <laughs> so, yeah. And it was a really good um, atmosphere. And you see that just from the, you know, top summit level to the ambassador level to, you know, to the working level. So the, the Biden was just really working hard to keep it up. But as a turn of events, so to say, um, the, the, the uh, Kishida Yoon Summit in November, just um, November 13th, at the um, East Asia Summit, you know, it's a change of atmosphere. Finally, we got a summit level talk, um, official, uh, not like the New York meeting <laughs> back yeah. in uh, September. So it's a it's a change of things. So th- this really is extraordinary, given where we were, and given the fact that export controls and chips, which is, you know, people are really starting to understand that that chips and export controls are a very big part of national security. That's a big deal that they're now getting together and there's a trilateral statement, the first ever. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, yes. Well, Dr. Cha is, is like the expert on this, but from a perspective, um, from a Japanese expert, uh, it's it's an A, I would give it an A or A plus <laughs> regarding the statement. I mean, it was uh, finally, you know, finally, uh, the long awaited summit level statement. Um, this is the first one 
I mean, and it's uh, it's actually historic in a way, and it's a beginning of a new chapter in, in our trilateral um, uh, relationship. Um, but the problem is, how much will it actually be implemented? You know, that is a question to be answered uh, in the upcoming uh, months and years. But first of all, what's good about it is just it covers a lot of ground. It's very broad. But actually, the issues are have been already covered in U.S., Korea, or U.S., Japan bilateral statements. Um, but now, finally, it's trilateralized, so to speak, and it comes from you know it goes from traditional security. You know, North Korea is you know number one at the top, but also it goes to finally uh, we have we are kind of on the same page on the Indo-Pacific strategy because the South Koreans have finally. Um, you know, come up with their Korean version of the Indo-Pacific strategy. So we can use that same term. But there's a lot of that, a lot of that Indo-Pacific initiatives are economic. Okay. And um, one of the features is that um, they, that's the leaders agreed to do a trilateral um, sort of kind of dialogue on economic security, which is, was kind of like a taboo issue because as Victor mentioned, Japan, Korea has the export control issue still. I think the Japan side has made a decision to kind of delink the defense and other issues, uh, economic security issues from the bilateral issues and work on it at least trilaterally. Um, so that's a big step forward in terms of Japan-Korea relations as well. Victor, what's your take on this? So I, I, I agree. I mean, I read the statement. Uh, I thought it was an excellent statement. I emailed Kurt and I said, this is an excellent statement. To Kurt Campbell. Yeah, I just thought it was an excellent statement. It was starting from the outside looking in, it was very broad. So it sent the message that this three-way partnership is not does not only provide exclusive benefits to Washington, Seoul, and Tokyo, it provides benefits to the world. It is providing security and non-security benefits for the world across all of these different areas and yeah. Ukraine as well. And And with regard to the three countries, you know, if you read it carefully, the security section of the statement, it is about as close as you can get to a collective security statement among the three allies without it being a collective security statement. A collective security statement would have said an attack against one of us is an attack against all of us. Kurt Campbell tried to get that uh, as assistant secretary in the Obama administration, and, and it was unsuccessful. In the end, it was just domestically, politically too controversial for obvious reasons, right? But, you know, this statement didn't say that, but it was about as close as you could get to that linking the three allies' um, security. Uh, and I thought that, you know, I thought that was significant. So as, as you said, Andrew, it's the first time we've seen a statement like this. Initially, it was, I didn't like it because it said Phnom Penh trilateral statement on cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. And I, I, I said, like, this doesn't work. It looks like it's an ASEAN statement. you got to put, like, U.S., Japan, Korea in the title. So to their credit, they did do that. Right? But I, I agree. I mean, I think it's an important statement. Um, I'm sure it took a lot of work, right, a lot of work to get this done. And I would say, on the, to me, the thing that has changed the most in the last month or so is that we're seeing the Kishida government being more forward-leaning on uh, bilateral and trilateral relations. Because I think initially the U.S. and South Korea have been forward-leaning and Japan was still quite cautious. And now they've kind of they've kind of joined in. Yeah. And that's and that's great. I mean, and, you know, given everything that's going on in the region now, you need some stability. And this is this is a foundation, the core 
of stability in the in the region. So, if I may follow up on what uh, Victor just said, so yes, the bilateral relationship has entered into a new kind of stage, um, with Japan being a little bit more forward leaning, so to speak. So the fact that the two leaders met it means that at the summit level means yes, you can go further in like the diplomatic levels and um, and other you know uh, ministries as well. So it, it gives us it gives room for the bureaucrats to you know move further. And you know the one of the big issues is of course the uh, the the history the Korean labor's issue that we really have to get over. But that's you know not supposed supposed to be related to the uh, export control, but politically, unfortunately, it, it is. So, but it's a, it's a it's, it's kind of like a key to opening up new uh, going into a new stage. That's the Yun Kishida summit. But I would like to say on the defense areas, though, this is a totally different set of issues. That still we haven't uh, Japan and Korea hasn't quite gotten gotten over it yet. So um, I would like to tell the the U.S. experts that Japan is willing to. Uh, this is according to stories I've hear from you know Japan defense official defense sorry former defense officials and so forth. Is that Japan is willing to um, engage South Korea uh, in defense areas multilaterally and trilaterally. But the bilateral is still there's a, let's let's keep distance a little bit because of the 2018 incidents that happened and um, the the radar lock on and um, the uh, the SDF uh, ship flag incident, which keeps in which inhibits um, Japan to to participate in you know South Korean fleet reviews and so on. Recently, the South Korean ship and the South Korean um, Navy chief of staff came to. Um, Yokohama for the uh, Japan South Defense Force um, fleet review and the Westpac um, symposium, which discusses, you know, incidents at sea and so forth. Um, So that's good. The fact that Japan defense invited South Korea to the fleet review, that's good. But still, the issue of the radar lockdown incident um, hasn't quite been overcome. We all know that there's two, st- well, there's two stories uh, politically. There's just two stories to this issue, you know, um, how it happened. So, and speaking from the view of the Japan defense side, you know, there was this deep, deep mistrust, okay, that still lingers on because there has been no quote unquote apology um, or, and, but the Koreans have a different story. And, um, but just yesterday, uh, the Korean defense, um, Ministry of Defense, I think it was a press briefing where the official had to answer probably a question uh, about the radar lock on incident. And he said, uh, according to the Korean newspapers, he said, there is no radar lock on incident, <laughs> which means that would, that would imply that Japan lied. And so that, that, that ah, this is so, this is such a sensitive issue. Uh, and the Japanese defense of uh, people, you know, they don't come out and voice it, but, um, uh, this has to be, uh, overcome in some way. And some defense, uh, former defense officials uh, say that perhaps we can start with like a a Navy to Navy, military to military talk, you know, don't get the politicians in, Um, you know, but there's no sign of that apparently um, from the Korean side yet. So it's really 
unfortunately, kind of um, keeping a, a, like a stop to the bilateral um, relationship. So I would like to point that out and hope that the U.S. can be nuanced about it. <laughs> so, well, it's it's this is absolutely fascinating, and it really you're getting into the the heart of the matter, and. You know, this is this leads to my question, going back to what Victor was saying about collective security. You know, given what you just said, given that there's a ways to go, does this trilateral statement pave the way for a future collective security agreement? Regarding a collective security agreement, um, I think that Japan and even South Korea are not leaning forward in terms of having a real alliance agreement. I mean, the Asia-Pacific um, area is just so diverse that we can't agree on everything, right? And um, so there's no NATO. Um, NATO would never be not be possible a NATO type of multilateral agreement. But but yes, with the for the Indo-Pacific era, we have these mini laterals coming up, and then we have the traditional U.S. ROK Japan alliance. But you know, we tried it for 20 years, and <laughs> it, it's not going to be a like a mutual defense collective security agreement, but as Victor said a long time ago, virtual alliance, virtual, yes. Okay. But there's not going to be a formal, I don't think, I don't see a formal alliance type of collective security agreement. So because Japan is, yes, we will support Korea, you know, vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, so forth. But also there's this um, worry about entanglement vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the Korean peninsula, especially since the last few years. So First of all, uh, before in 1990s, the Cold War years, North Korea didn't have missiles, you know, shooting at us. <laughs> but um, so, you know, you're all, we're all for the uh, rear area support and so forth. We have a uh, Korea contingency defense guidelines with the United States. Um, but, you know, nothing has really gone forward after that. Um, so and but now North Koreans can shoot missiles at us. We're in a bind because... You know, the North Koreans are really worried about South Korea and the United States, but Japan's kind of stuck in between here. And that's the kind of the mindset right now uh, in the defense area. But the U.S.-Korea alliance is a strategic asset for Japan security and U.S.-Japan. So we are all for strengthening, you know, the, that U.S.-Korea alliance if um, and through trilateral cooperation. That's a steady policy that Japan um, holds on to. But when it comes to Japan, Korea, there's a lot of baggage going on here. So, but there's a lot of goodwill, professional relationship between the defense officials. But once again, the 2018 incident really damaged the situation. But um, of course, the Japanese defense um, people are willing to, you know, take this on, take this situation in a realistic way, and trying to trying to deal with it professionally. So. The point is, we're not going to step away from trilateral cooperation or Korea, but when it comes to collective security, uh, it's a different story, I think. Victor, I'd like your thoughts. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. The first is that in terms of the bilateral sort of operational security relationship and these things that happen, the, you know, the radar lock incident and others, I agree that that has to be resolved at the military to military level. Can't have the politicians or even policy involved in that. That's just got to be a military to military thing. And they should just resolve it quietly and, you know, come up with some protocols or whatever it is and then just put that away. On the bilateral history issues, the, um, you know, the two sides are in deep negotiations right now. 
by, on the bilateral history issues, the, the whole question of labor compensation for conscripted labor and these sorts of things. And, and the stakes there are high, right? Foreign Minister, Prime Minister also came to Korea, right, um, to discuss these issues, which is a big step, a big move, right? And, and the fact that it was also too, right, you know, a sort of diehard conservative uh, on the Japanese side it was also very symbolic. It's like Nixon going to China, right? So I think that that's important. And then in terms of the trilateral, like I said, I mean, I think that the Phnom Penh statement is about as close as you can get to some sort of collective security statement. The statement linked the security of the three countries for sure, but it focused on the U.S. commitment to both sides. It didn't have the collect like the Article 5 NATO sort of statement in there, but um, it did say that the security of the three were linked and that the United States commitment was automatic to, to both sides. Like I said, that's the closest you're going to get. But the fact that we got that should not be discounted, right? Victor, you were talking about how it's good for the world. You know, this might be obvious to some people, but like, can you spell out why this is good for the world? Yeah. So it's good for the world in two respects, right? These, as Sakata-san knows well, alliances provide security benefits and non-security benefits, right? And so the security benefits of the trilateral relationship are, this is a very important shaping function when it comes to China, right? China relies on or assumes that Japan and Korea will be at odds with each other, right? For them, that's like an easy win. They, you know, because of the history issues, they think, you know, keep them apart. So anytime that they are growing closer together, this is a problem for China, right? Of course, China engages with both Japan and South Korea. But when the three major democracies in Asia are together, you know, that's a shaping function on China, right? And so I think that's, that's very important. And that has implications for the region, right? If it somehow modulates how assertive China can be, um, that has implications for the region. Beyond that, like Sakata-san said, this idea of trilateral economic security dialogue, um, you know, this is about supply chains, resilient supply chains on high value, high tech sorts of things where Japan and Korea sort of are, are, are global leaders. Um, if they're helping to secure supply chains on whatever it might be, semiconductors, biopharmaceuticals, climate technology, EV batteries, whatever it might be, they're helping to secure supply chains for that. That's not just yeah. beneficial to the three countries. That's beneficial to, to the world, right? Any, any country that's going to have electric vehicles, it's beneficial to them. On biopharmaceuticals, there's cooperation among the three countries on pandemics and on vaccines and antivirals. You know, Korea is the only country in Asia that has um, a license to produce uh, the mRNA Moderna vaccine, right? And they want to be able to also eventually produce the antivirals, right? The Paxlovid-type antivirals. They're developing their own antivirals and their own COVID vaccines. This is also beneficial to not just Japan, Korea, and the United States. It's beneficial to the world. So this is what I mean by providing non-security benefits. And can Korea do this on their own? Yes, but it, but there's a multiplier effect when they're doing it with the United States and with Japan. Yeah, it's it's another source of stability for world economy. Um, I mean, definitely, um, we're like number Japan's number three <laughs> GDP wise, and Korea's like within the ten. You know, it could be a G seven plus. You know, um, you know, we have to be cooperating 
um, economically and and for the liberal, you know, internationalist order. All of the issues, you know, these the security supply chain and the emerging techs and techs and vaccines and so forth, these are quad-like, you know, issues. And what we're doing at US, finally, you know, uh, the leaders have committed to do it also from a trilateral perspective. So that's another source of stability. And also, if you read the Phnom Penh um, statement, it talks about the uh, the ASEAN centrality, the, the Mekong issue, and, you know, the Pacific Islands initiative. And, you know, it's all in there. I mean, it's, it has been there. The issues has been there. U.S., Korea, U.S., Japan, but finally, you know, another commitment to those issues through the trilateral. Um, that's another important, um, how do you say, commitment that has been um, shown. Wow. Okay. Well, so this is the impossible state. So we got to talk about North Korea. I want to get both of your assessments on all of this missile testing, including last night, Victor. Can you talk about the missile test last night and then maybe follow up with, are we expecting a seventh nuclear test? It's interesting. I was actually in a meeting uh, by Zoom in Korea last night, uh, just as news of this ICBM test happened. So it gave us plenty to talk about. So, you know, based on the information we have, this does look like it was an intercontinental ballistic missile based on um, the time it was in flight, the the trajectory, um, it act, this one actually landed very close to Japan. I mean, as Sakata-san knows, very close to Japan, within Japan's um, exclusive economic zone. And this should not be discounted. I mean, this is very serious, very serious stuff. Can you imagine if if North Korea had fired a ICBM and it landed within 200 miles of Los Angeles? Can you imagine what the reaction would be in the United States or 200 miles of of, of Honolulu? I mean, can you imagine what the reaction would be? And the, and they can do that, right, Victor? Oh, yeah, they can I mean, do that. You remember the Hawaii alert, the mishaps, I guess, of the yeah. missile alerts. So, you know, that was 2017, I think. But we have had this every, almost every week now. And we recently in our national defense strategy really spelled out that if North Korea were to, you know, hit us or one of our allies, that the North Korean state would end. Correct. So this is this is very serious. It's very serious. Um could it be a setup for the seventh test? Yes, that's entirely that's entirely possible. We've been waiting for the seventh test. You know, unfortunately, there's there's not a whole lot that we can do about it. That's the concerning thing. I don't know. Maybe Sakata-san has has some ideas about what we should do, but you know, they're not interested in dialogue. Uh, the UN Security Council is uh, route is blocked by China and Russia. I think in many ways. North Korea's very aggressive behavior over the past year has been enabled by uh, knowing that they have the support of China, of China and Russia um, in the UN, where they don't have to worry about UN Security Council resolutions. In the past, you know, we've gotten many UN Security Council resolutions every time North Korea did a nuclear test because the Chinese and the Russians signed on, but that's that's not that's not the the case anymore. Um, and then if you add on top of that, you know, this news that North Korea is supplying Russia with weapons for Ukraine, then you know the, all of this is facilitating North Korea's um, really unchecked behavior. And um, and and so yeah, I mean we I, I mean I think we have to keep emphasizing how seriously we need to take this because 
a lot of the national security focus now is on Ukraine and it's on China, Taiwan. Meanwhile, you know, North Korea is doing all this stuff. Andrew, you mentioned the national defense strategy and the national security strategy. You know, those documents classify Russia, Ukraine as the immediate threat, China, Taiwan as the pacing threat, the longer term strategic threat. And it classifies North Korea as a persistent threat, which I don't think is right because persistence suggests it's not changing, but the threat is changing. And it's very, and it's, and, you know, they're landing ICBMs just off the coast of Japan. I mean, this is very, very serious stuff. Yeah, it's, it's escalating is the point you're making. It's escalating. It's not just persistent. Well, and not to mention when we talk about Ukraine, you know, what about the reports that North Korea is arming Russia? How serious is that? I think it's very, I think it's serious. I don't think these reports are unfounded. Uh, I think they're quite serious. And, you know, North Korea was one of the first to recognize Russia's gains in the Donbass region, ascending laborers as well. And North Korea has a financial economic interest in doing this, right? Because they have been trying to get, going back to the Soviet Union, uh, Moscow to forgive a lot of debt that they have with Russia. And so they have an economic interest in doing this as well, in addition to obviously taking advantage of the fact that U.S. relations with China and Russia are so bad. North Korea loves it. They absolutely love it when the United States relationship with China and the United States relationship with Russia is bad. They love it because they see opportunity in drawing closer to China and Russia. When U.S. relations with China or Russia are good, makes North Koreans very paranoid. They think there's a deal that's going to be cut behind their back. At six-party talks, the North Koreans were always nervous when we go into a room with the Chinese, right? Because they thought, well, what are you guys doing? Like, are you going to make some sort of deal? about?" Always worried about that. And, and it's the opposite for South Korea, right? For South Korea, when, when um, U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia relations are bad, makes the South Koreans very nervous. It's Sakata Sunset, entanglement, right? Entrapment. They're very worried about entrapment. But when um, U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia relations are good, the South Koreans love that. So they're like the mirror image of each other. For Japan, too, um, we're um, revising our national security strategy, and it's it's upcoming in December, by the way. And um, so North Korea is still on the top three list, I guess. But China, of course, would be the number one source of uh, challenge and, and basically you know defense threat. But um, North Korea is still on there. Japan is kind of in a bind right now because we're kind of in a, uh, how do you say, a strategic trilemma, so to speak, <laughs> because the global issue, the idea in the Pacific with China, but also the Northeast Asia situation is becoming much more tougher right now. And what the Japanese experts use, the, the, we use the word uh, three front operation, you know, China, Taiwan. North Korea, Korea happening, and that leading to Japan contingency. So we're really worried about, once again, entanglement. What is those two contingencies happen at the same time? And with Mr. Xi talking about, you know, Taiwan unification in five years or whatever, you know, this uh, has really upped the level of security awareness, so to speak. And then it becomes, what are we going to do about it? So there's going to be a really a revamping of um, defense um, assets and you know, and reinforcing the U.S.-Japan alliance. Um, but as far as North Korea is concerned, um, you know, ever since 2018, we've been calling it a grave and imminent threat in our white white paper, you know, defense white papers. But 
the recent moves, it, it talks about, you know, first use of nuclear weapons and uh, and that, you know, uh, overlaps with what Mr. Putin's saying. And so the, the, the mindset is really heightening uh, regarding security threat. And if they do a nuclear test, seventh nuclear test, I mean, I wish they wouldn't, but if they, well, if they do, they would make progress in miniaturizing probably the nuclear device. And that would make it easier for them to put it on the scuds and nodons and so forth that Japan is most worried about. So, but if we can't stop it, what do we do? That's the the task that um, we face right now. So yes, we're all for deterrence, but also here that I hope the Korean Peninsula situation does not go out of control while we try to, you know, control the escalation game. So um, we need a lot from the United States as well in South Korea. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, Professor Sakata, thank you so much for coming on Impossible State. It's a really terrific conversation. And Victor, thank you as always. We will be back after Thanksgiving. Uh, so happy Thanksgiving to all of our U.S. listeners. So this is our Thanksgiving episode, right? Right. Yeah. Impossible State with Turkey. <laughs> not too much yeah. turkey in japan though but <laughs> yes. and and not not entirely comforting thoughts coming from this podcast either even though there is some comforting thoughts so a lot to think about i hope we can stick together yes that's right that's right well thank you both thanks andrew thank you If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.